Shalom, and welcome to the second of a mini-series of episodes in the podcast Heretics Standing at Sinai. I'm your host, Rabbi J. Tel Rav, and today is the eighth day of the month of Elul, the last day of the month, which makes it a perfect time for us to spend looking back before we jump into the new year. Each Friday this month, I'll be publishing another episode that focuses on one of the iconic prayers of the upcoming holiday liturgy. Last week, we took a fresh look at the prayer known as Avinu Malkenu from the point of view of a non-dualist. During the week, I heard from a number of you how much you enjoyed that new lens. It's my hope to change nobody's mind about the prayers and their meaning, only to demonstrate how this particular non-dualist relates to materials that look, at first glimpse, like they are explicitly dualist. Now, to clarify what I mean by dualist, it helps to think about the traditional presentations of God in times of antiquity. The Torah describes two sides of a relationship bound together through covenant. Humanity and the physical world on one side, and a supernatural, meaning above or beyond nature, a supernatural God on the other side. In the journey of my own life, I've not experienced that God. And instead, I've found Jewish teachings about spirituality that eliminate that two-sided duality and describe God as the sum total of the universe. It can seem contrary to what we learned in religious school, and therefore it could be found to be counter to Judaism, but that could not be further from the truth. But for that reason, I've chosen to call this podcast Heretics Standing at Sinai, because our beliefs seem to contradict the mainstream teaching. But I assure you they do not, and also that you are not alone if you find the physical universe to be awe-inspiring and amazing to the point of pure joy at awareness of being a part of it. Some have found it helpful to call that radical amazement atheism, while I've found it important to reconcile the best parts of our Jewish tradition with this way of thinking. And it is also a way of living. If you look around and see absolutely everything as holy, then it would clearly have an effect on your thoughts, your choices, and of course your spirituality. You would be much quicker to forgive what appears to be flaws because they too are a part of the universe, a part of God. You would be much more willing to find holy love and also forgiveness for yourself because you too are a part of the universe, a part of God. You would feel compelled to serve the universe by serving our planet and more locally the people around you as they are holy, they're a part of God. God. And you would use your higher level consciousness to lift yourself above the freneticism of the world from time to time to look back on it in perspective and to reset your relationship to all the details what I just described as the non-dualist's spirituality is central to the traditions and behaviors 
of these upcoming Jewish holidays. Those who practice meditation are seeking to quiet their mind and to re-enter the world holding on to that quiet for as much of the time as possible. Seeing non-duality everywhere is difficult. It's impossible for all but the most remarkable spiritual souls to do it constantly. And so we all spend a great deal of time in that world of duality, operating in the normal world. But Rosh Hashanah is Judaism's acknowledgement of those same limitations. We're supposed to be doing a hard look in the mirror all year long, but the busyness of life gets in the way and we forget. And so, just like we sit at special moments in meditation, at this specific time of year, we come together for the communal cheshbon hanefesh, or the accounting of ourselves. Of course, one can do this any time of year and would be better for it, but since we don't, the holidays are presented as a way to remind us that it needs to happen. Now, the prayer that I'm going to explore with you today is known by the name Unatanatokef, because those are the first words. I'll put a link to the entire prayer in the show notes for you to read it through slowly at your own pace. But today we're going to focus in on a few key elements. Those of you who've spent the holidays with me in the past may remember me saying that this is a particularly difficult prayer for me. There have been a few years when I took it out of the liturgy altogether because I just could not bear to lead the congregation through liturgy that I felt could be so damaging to the spirit of those out there who didn't know what to do with it. Perhaps more than any other of the prayers that we will cover, it could be that this is the most important for me personally to work on so that I can return to it with a renewed sense of safety. Stated quite simply, this piece of prayer presents the idea that a decision is made on Rosh Hashanah and finalized on Yom Kippur about each one of us and our upcoming year. The prayer presents God as a judge who watches and passes sentences upon each of us during these days. It even goes so far as to compare God to the shepherd who counts and judges the sheep of his flock. And you know, of course, that then makes us the sheep. With that judgment, if God determines that we are unworthy of another full year, our names will be written in the book of death, and we will die at some point this coming year. The prayer goes on to itemize all the ways that we may find ourselves experiencing that death. The liturgy says, Who shall live and who shall die? Who will grow old and whose life will be cut short early? God will decide who will die by fire and who will die by water, who will die in war, and who will be gored by an animal. Which one of us is going to starve to death and who's going to die by thirst? And it goes on and on and on. So it's important to understand what it seems this prayer is saying. It suggests that if a beautiful child is stricken with a terminal illness, 
It was because God decided they were unworthy of living the rest of their lives. It means that if a hardened criminal avoids arrest and lives big, it's because God decided that it should be so. This seems to be the essence of the dualistic, external, supernatural judge, that God on high that I have never met. Now, the final obstacle to my relationship with this prayer is the closing line that says in Hebrew, Uteshuvah, Utefilah, Utsedakah, Ma'avirin et roa hagzera, which means, but through the return to the right path, through prayer, and through righteous giving, we can transcend the harshness of the decree. The most obvious translation of this suggests that if you still die this next year, you must not have repented well enough, or you must not have prayed hard enough, or you must not have given enough charity. It's possible that messages like these spoke to our ancestors in different ways than today. But I know that I'm not alone in saying that this can be pretty difficult for us to swallow. I know this in several ways. First, of course, through conversations I've had with many of you. But beyond that, there are commentaries and study texts in our prayer book that try to spin this prayer in ways that will remain accessible and tolerable for today's Jewish community. There are alternate prayers on the far side of the page in our prayer book that seem to directly contradict what the prayer itself says. One example on page 181 says, I speak these words, but I do not believe them. Clearly, it says there's no scientific foundation and human beings are the gloriously complex product of evolution from single-celled organisms. This piece goes on and says, and as for our end, well, there's no need to dwell on that right now. It says there's so much for us to do and so many ways to keep busy. And here's the crux. It goes on to say, because what would it mean if all of this, the words of Unatanatokev, were true after all. I think this text is trying to acknowledge that you don't have to believe what the words say in order to be motivated by them. I guess this approach has never satisfied my needs during the days. There is an inherent wink-wink uh, from the editors that allow us to admit that we're all going to sit here and we're all going to say words we don't believe. But instead, I prefer the exercise of diving into the material and finding authentic truth in which I can believe. So here goes. This prayer, as I read it, sets up a relationship to our lives that may not serve our best interest. It suggests that living is the highest goal, and that dying would be considered a failure, not just because of a set of chaotic circumstances, but because we've disappointed God. This is an important aspect in the teaching of our doctors in our Western system of medicine. They are taught that they 
should deny death for absolutely as long as possible because it would be a failure of our system and not simply the natural end that we all know we will all experience. The author Atul Gawande addresses this way of thinking in his book Being Mortal. When we do everything we can to avoid death, we are not really living. Instead, lives spent appreciating whatever we find right in front of ourselves, even the difficulties of aging and accidents, disasters, and chaos can be the most rich of existences. Resistance is futile. Attachment to something that you are absolutely going to lose is a surefire way to experience profound suffering. I mentioned Rabbi Alan Liu last week. Again, here he is, suggesting that letting down the resistance and returning to the admission that this is really happening, you are aging. Your body is serving you differently than it used to, and your mind is able to do different things, some new and others gone forever. This is a way of thinking that turns a fear of the negative into an acknowledgement and acceptance of the reality. All year, we're going, going, going. Rarely do we give ourselves a chance to stop. Shabbat, for some, might be that. Others know the experience through the act of going on vacation. That is, if they leave their email at home. And I bet you'd be willing to see that time of slowdown as holy. A high holy day is just that, a chance to slow down. And more than that, to look ahead at the eventual great slowdown that will bring your life to a close. Without fear, without resentment or disappointment, we might stare right back at it and accept it. Unatana Tokev gives us the opportunity to effectively stare our own mortality in the eye and say, I'm going to look right at this prayer and say, you can't scare me. I already know what you say, so your power over me is an illusion. I want to read you something from a different book that came from Rami Shapiro. This is his book called Holy Rascals, in which he takes to task traditional religions and does his best in what I find to be a convincing way to pull the curtain back on how some of this functions. This small piece is called We've Got the Power. He writes, God's claim to be all-powerful, they are not. If Krishna were all-powerful, Hindus wouldn't eat beef. If Adonai were all-powerful, Jews wouldn't eat pork. If Jesus were all-powerful, Catholics wouldn't use condoms, and Southern Baptists wouldn't have abortions. If Allah were all-powerful, Muslims wouldn't drink alcohol. He goes on and says, Yet Hindus do eat beef. Jews do eat pork. Catholics do use condoms. Southern Baptists do have abortions. And Muslims do drink alcohol. Not all, of course, but some. Indeed, if only one violated the laws of her God, she would prove the limitation of her God's power. 
It isn't that your God lets you violate the laws. It is that your God can't stop you from doing so. Why? Because that God doesn't exist. That God is a figment of the imagination of people who have issues with beef, pork, condoms, abortions, or alcohol, and who, with some very bloody and violent exceptions, lack the capacity to force people to live according to their issues. I find that to be a jarring statement. That the fact that we have the ability to transgress means that God does not have the power to stop us. In fact, there is no God that can stop us. This undermines the premise of Unatanatokef that says, God is watching and God is deciding and based on our behavior, God will reward or punish. We know that in the coming year, there are going to be people who die When we look around at the sanctuary, we know that some of the people around us will not be sitting there next year. We know that some of them will die of old age and others will die far too young. We know that some of them are going to die violent deaths and others will be tranquil. We know that some will get rich, others will lose fortunes. This is the nature of being alive. There's truth in the words of Unatana Tokef, but I don't believe that it happens at the hands of a God who makes that as a decision. So, I will lift myself higher. I will live my best life, not because I'm afraid of the fear of punishment, but rather because I'm drawn to live a good life. That gives me an enormous amount of purpose. I choose to run toward the incentive of a life well-lived rather than run from the threat of a punishment. This prayer then becomes a cautionary tale of what focusing on the wrong elements of holiness can do. It can leave us living small, fearful lives rather than full, rich existences. I'm going to close out this episode in just another moment. And as with last week, We will do so to the sounds of Cantor Micah and our High Holiday Choir, singing us the first several lines of this prayer, Unitana Tokef. As you listen to the music, the question that I would pose to you is, what did you take from listening to these last few minutes of exploration of this prayer? What new ways of thinking about a familiar piece of liturgy occur to you, and how might you employ that to its highest and best purpose as you sit with us at synagogue in the next couple of days for Rosh Hashanah as we herald in the new year, 5784. Until next week, for all of you who are listening carefully, stretching your beliefs, and finding yourselves in our tradition, I will simply say, all you heretics out there, stand proud. Tanner <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Thank <laughs> you.